Welcome to today's episode of the All Things Podcast. I am excited to introduce you to two new Redemption Press authors. During the first half of the podcast, you'll meet April Catherman Redgrave, author of Through Hell or High Water, a police widow's story of tragic loss and redeeming love. During the second half of the podcast, you'll meet Dr. Larry Selig, author of Five Prayers God Loves to Answer. They both have incredible Romans 8:28 stories to share with us today. So first things first, let me give our first guest a proper introduction. April Catherman Redgrave is an author, speaker, blogger, and founder of Beauty for Our Ashes Ministry. As the surviving widow of fallen San Jose Police Motors Officer Michael J. Catherman, April experienced unimaginable brokenness and despair, but also witnessed how God redeemed a terrible situation into one of great beauty and joy. Once a school teacher and aspiring educational administrator, April now writes and speaks to encourage law enforcement, the grieving, the divorced, blended families, and finding love after loss. Now remarried, April lives in Gilroy, California with David, her husband on earth, and their five children, Joshua, Jason, Braden, Tegan, and Savannah. They call themselves the Red Cat Fam, a wonderful blend of the Redgrave and Catherman families. They enjoy exploring and camping in their RV, spending time together at their family cabin in the mountains, fishing, sports, traveling, and hosting family and friends at their home. As a family, they always honor and remember Mike in everything they do. To connect with April, you can visit her website at beautyforourashes.com, as well as follow her on Facebook and Instagram. All right, let's roll that conversation. So April, it is so exciting to finally have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us on the All Things Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. You bet. So normally we would start out and talk about one of many Romans 828 stories in your life, but because your book is one big, huge, amazing Romans 828 story, we're just going to dive right into that. All right. So nearly five years has passed since you Mm -hmm. lost both your first husband and your home to a tragic flood. How has the April from June 2016 changed to become the April of today? Well, definitely, I am a completely different woman than I was. And I really wish that I could go back and tell myself five years ago a little bit more about life. And I would say that now I am more confident. And because even though I've been saved my whole life, I felt like and, and I noticed this now, I did not notice this at the time, my confidence and my strength was in my husband. It wasn't necessarily in Christ. And it's all I knew. I was had just turned 18 when Mike and I started dating. We grew up together. All I knew was him and his strength and his love for me and all things us. And so it really took me losing him to find myself to find my strength. I had to rely on Christ. I could not rely on Mike anymore because he was not there. 
So confidence, I think, and strength would be number one. Next is I wasn't really a stop and smell the roses kind of person. I was very much, you know, type A personality, point A to point B, worried about my career and my kids and, you know, the schedules. And now I feel like I, well, I definitely took things for granted, which I wish I wouldn't have, but I can just live life right now to the point where I cannot sweat the small stuff. I can really enjoy quality time. And I just also more compassion, I would have to say towards others, definitely, and struggles that others are going through that you might not even know. And then lastly, I would say kindness. Not that I wasn't a kind person before, but I feel like I can offer more compassion and kindness without judgment now. Mm. And suffering will do that for us when we embrace it and and we don't get bitter, but Mm -hmm. we learn from it. I totally agree with you that that is, that's the kind of turning point sometimes we have to go through in life to really learn to trust God. For sure. So how is the grieving process for a fallen officer possibly different than the grieving process for someone else? Because we've probably got lots of ladies listening today. Most of them probably aren't in your shoes, Mm -hmm. but grieving, you know, there's some similarities in grieving that we, you know, we don't get around no matter what the situation is. So just give us a little bit of your feedback on that. And then what expectations are these widows or widowers under? I think that the grieving process is a little bit different for the wife of a fallen officer because it's so public and there's so many responsibilities that come with it. And you don't get a chance to just break down. You don't get that chance immediately to grieve because there's so many obligations. And in the beginning, you really think you have to say yes to every obligation. You have to go to every ceremony. You have to go to every meeting because it's like your duty as this new widow of a fallen officer. I felt like it took over a year before I could really start to heal in my grieving process because I had to portray this strong, poised widow who could make the right decisions and show up at all these meetings and and events, you know, where on the inside, I was dying. I wanted to die. And if I could give any advice to, let's, let's start with a widow of a fallen officer, I would say, it's okay to say no. It is okay to just I know I, I don't have to go to every ceremony. I don't have to go to every meeting. You know, let's reschedule that one. I want to just be home. Give yourself time to grieve. Recognize that. And then for just the average civilian, as they call it, or, you know, widow, I would say we, we have the same feelings. We lost the love of our life, you know, whether it was expected or not. And it's okay to have those feelings of deep grief and not know what to do and feel so incredibly lost and broken. I literally wanted to crawl in that casket and die with him. I wanted to be buried with him. And I'm sure any type of widow or widower is going to have that same exact feeling and it's okay. That makes me question those of us, you know, we're not widows of a fallen officer. Mm -hmm. But some of us actually know someone 
who is in those, who does walk in those Mm -hmm. shoes. I'll bet there's some insensitive things we could say, Mm -hmm. trying to be full. And there's probably, what's the best thing for someone like me? Uh Can't say I understand how you feel Uh because I don't. What's the best way for us to love a woman who's going through what you went through? I think that is such a good question and such a good topic to address because you're exactly right. I did not like when people say I understand. You know, I lost my mom last year. I understand what you're going through. And it's like, I am so sorry you lost your mom, but it is not the same at all. It's still grieving. It's still a loss and it's heartbreaking nonetheless, but it's not the same. All, what I could really say for someone maybe in your shoes that's on the outside is be there with support, without judgment and without advice. In the beginning, she doesn't want to hear your advice. Later on, yes, absolutely. I crave the advice from others. You know, others that are that haven't even gone through the loss as me, just those people with Christ-like wisdom. But don't try to act like you know what she's going through and just be there and don't stop connecting. Don't stop inviting. So there was times where I felt like people would stop inviting me places because it was awkward because they didn't know what to say or they'd stop texting or calling because, you know, it's almost like they were afraid to make me sad. But what made me more sad is that everyone just kind of trickled away. And Mm. what, you know, it's like that random text that was just like, hey, I'm thinking about you. That's all I needed, you know, or the, you know, I said no to almost every single invite to dinner or, you know, a party or anything that I normally would have done with all these people because I wasn't ready. And I just, I couldn't have normal life. But the fact that I was still invited, eventually I said, yes, eventually I was able to do that. So I would say, don't, don't pretend like you've been in their shoes because you haven't. And that's a rough one. Keep reaching out, keep inviting and don't offer judgment or advice. And I know that that probably sounds a little bit harsh, but she just needs love and support and the constant reminders that, Hey, I'm here. That's it. You don't need to respond to me. I just want to text you and say, I love you. That's it. That's so good. Cause we, as women want to, I mean, if it's awkward at all, we want to try and fix it. So yes. it's not awkward anymore. Yeah. And that's probably the worst thing we could try and do. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's it's more awkward for you. It's not awkward for me. Right. You know, I want, I want to talk about him. I, I want to tell the stories that makes me more happy. So you're the one that's awkward. It's not me. So, so just remember that. That's a really good point that you just made. So huh? would it, would it be appropriate or helpful to say, tell me about a happy time that you yes. that 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 just resonates who he was to you? Yes. I love when people would be like, just tell me a little bit about him or, you know, in anything like that. And that would be what would bring the smile to my face is when I could say his name. And it was it, it made me more sad when I'm in this whole group of people and we go the whole entire event and no one mentions him one time. And it's like, because no one wants to step on, on, you know, 
on these eggshells or make me, they think, they think cause I'm a widow and it's new. I'm just going to break down in tears, but I'm going to break down in tears when I get home. Cause no one mentioned his name. Mm. So wow. yes, yes. That's, that's Talk about so him. Good. And, and the jokes too, like the widows are the best at dead jokes. Like say the jokes and you tell me the memories that I don't know. And especially if she has children, make sure you tell those stories and those memories so those kids can hear it. Mm. Yeah. That is so good. I love that. So I know the media played a big part, mm-hmm. uh, especially, you know, being a widow of a fallen officer. Yeah. Tell me the struggles that you had with the media and, you know, does it ever get easier? Cause it's gotta be kind of like cold water in your face when you really don't want it. Absolutely. Yeah. And I can tell you, first of all, it does get easier because unfortunately there's another story to come behind yours. So yes, it does get easier, but in the beginning it's, it's in your face from the second I walked into that hospital where he was, you know, they wanted to announce his name immediately, but I hadn't even told my children yet. So if they were going to announce his name, I've got little boys at home with iPads that could just get on or turn on the TV and see it blasted everywhere. So it's, it starts immediately. And thank the Lord, my husband's department was on top of that and shielded us from all of it. And so I would say, stand your ground and, and say no when you need to, or have somebody else say no for you. I was not strong enough to say no. I was not strong enough to to make any of those decisions on my own, but I had people making them for me. So, and I had to choose those people. I would say early on, have in mind those people that you're going to let stand up for you and protect you and guard you from the media. And it's okay to say no. It's okay to not want to do any type of interview, but it's okay to say yes too. You know, maybe that's the way you heal and, and you want to, to talk about him in that platform. I did not. I wanted nothing to do with media at that time. And luckily we had, you know, people, not people, but officers outside of our house 24 seven for weeks on end, making sure that we were shielded from the media, any event that we went to, I said ahead of time, well, they would ask me ahead of time. Do you want to talk to anybody? Do you want to be interviewed? No. And they kept them away. So have someone you trust, I would say to know what you want, and to be the voice to make those decisions, decisions, excuse me, decisions for you. Amen. Amen. And so that takes some intentionality and some thinking through, okay, can I handle this? Do I yeah. want to handle this? And knowing when to put up a boundary. And, just yeah, say, and you're not, you're not all there mentally to make those decisions. So I pray there's someone in that circle that can do that for you, hmm. that you trust. Amen. Yeah. And that's, you know, you can't really trust the media. That's a thing. And oh, you can't. And that's, some of us are naive to that and don't mm-hmm. really realize what we're up against. Yeah. And it can be brutal. Mm-hmm. So can you describe those moments in the courtroom when you had to actually face the man who killed your husband? Yeah, one of the hardest days after losing Mike that I had in those months after our situation was different because when you think of an officer killed in the line of duty, you immediately think shot. You think an awful negative, bad situation with this terrible, bad guy. 
and ours was an accident. Mike was on his police motorcycle on duty and an elderly man just made a wrong left turn and hit him. There was no foul play involved. There was no criminal record. It was truly an accident. So that gives me a different perspective than, you know, a typical situation that unfortunately we're having more often now in society. But I went into that courtroom and I had no clue that the man sitting in front of me was that was him because all I knew was his name on paper because that's all I wanted to know. I didn't want any details in any meeting we ever had. So I did not know that he was sitting in front of me. So I already came with the agenda and my statement of what I was going to say. And my whole message was going to be forgiveness. There was really no reason for this man to spend the rest of his life in jail. There was no reason for him to have to pay so much money or, or have all this community service because he was suffering enough himself is what I had heard from other people because of what had happened. And so I asked the judge just to let him go. Don't give him jail time, nothing. And luckily that's exactly what had happened. But after the fact, him and I were able to embrace, be hugged. He told me how sorry he was for, you know, taking my husband, how sorry he was for my children. And as hard as that was, I think that it was healing for both of us. And I was able to meet his daughter who was, who was taking care of him. And so I would say that it was an experience to where my strength could only from come from Christ that day. There was no other way I would have been strong enough to face that man and hug him. And it, it was just Christ. And then knowing that that's what Mike would have wanted. With it being an accident, he would have just wanted forgiveness and to just move on and have that closure. What a statement for the Lord to, to come with that heart. Yeah. Wow. So you began writing as a way to remember back and heal from your ordeal. Mm -hmm. Describe how writing offered a personal outlet for you. What has become your purpose and message to others? I started writing with the advice of my therapist who had told me that, you know, to get all of your feelings out, go ahead and write a word document, type it up and then delete it. Because my worry was I didn't want anybody to see it. So that's what I started doing. And that really helped me open up to myself and then to bring that to therapy and talk through it. So then eventually I was comfortable enough to journal and I started journaling. And then I realized that I was healing through all of the journaling that I was doing. And there was a lot in there that I felt like I could start sharing. That's when the blog started. And of course, my readers in the beginning were my mom, my sister, you know, my best friends. But once I started hearing from others that they could relate with me, and that's when I realized, okay, God, what are you doing here? You're starting to open doors for me. Because what I loved doing was I loved finding blogs of women who were widows or single moms or something that I could relate to because I was struggling and the closest people in my life were not going through the exact same thing as me. So that's when the blogging started to, to be more and more. And as I was writing and, and helping others, really, I was mostly helping myself and helping my healing process and working through it. And my message just started being to tell others who are 
grieving or have a loss, just that there is hope and there's hope found through Christ. And it doesn't have to be the loss of a husband or a wife. It could be the loss of any family member. It could be the loss of a marriage or a job or health that grief comes in all shapes and forms and reasons. So I just hope that through my writings that I can can offer the encouragement and the hope and the example that, you know, I was at the worst, the absolute worst, and God slowly brought me out of it. And, and maybe just the ways that I was able to do that with God's strength. Well, and that's such a powerful, I mean, writing now it might not all be for publication and might not all be for the mm-hmm. blog, but there is something that happens in our brain and our heart when we yeah. write down our prayers, mm-hmm. our emotions, our memories, you know, what yes. we're processing through. There's just something to that that is so mm-hmm. cathartic, but also, you know, to be able to then go back to that and use it when you're writing, when you're actually writing the yes. actual story. And that's what I've been able to do is go back to my journaling and read it. And then I can see how far I've come. Yeah. Like just those, those tears on paper in words. Yeah. And I realized, oh my gosh, I was so broken. Yeah. So <laughs> now, wasn't there someone that actually helped you start a blog? Tell, tell us that story. Yes. My best friend, her name is Lisa. And she was really the one who was encouraging me to do this. So what she said was, I'm just going to start it for you. She got the blog completely set up. And she said, all you have to do is send me what you write. So I would just send her Word documents of all of my thoughts. And she would just format them for me and edit them and get them published on the blog. So it was just so much less stress on me. So having that, that person that I could trust with all of my thoughts and feelings, and that could say, oh my gosh, that is good. Or it's a little too much, a little too much there. Or how can you, how can you pull more? You know, she'd be like, this is good. I want more. And I'm like, I don't know if I can. So having you know, that, that person and Lisa was that person for me and really still is that was just the one that kind of gave me that little push and that kick and, and started the process for me. Well, what a great ministry for her too, to, to be a cheerleader for you and say, Oh yeah, this, I I want more or tell Mm -hmm. me more about this or yeah, you probably could just keep that in your journal and not put it up, <laughs> yeah. you know, on the blog. What a great ministry. Yes. And look how that empowered you then to mm-hmm. take the step and actually write the story. And I would say when we were talking back earlier about advice for others that are, you know, a friends, friends with someone who's grieving, be at least, you know, just be there to support and just, you know, hey, I'm going to do this for you. You know, and I think that was the main thing is that I didn't even know where to begin and emotionally couldn't. So she just took that off of my shoulders. I love that. What a great way to empower someone else to Mm -hmm. just process their grief, but also do it in a way that will minister to others. Absolutely. Amazing. So some people can't imagine remarrying another person after losing their spouse. What can you say to encourage these folks about remarriage and honoring their first spouse? When is the right time to begin dating or pursuing another spouse? You know, that's such a good question. And I was one of those people who no way 
no way will I remarry. How could I, how could I take off my wedding ring? I mean, it was just instantly where there's no one else I could ever love than my husband. That's it. And I remember going to a meeting with other widows and I look around, I was the only one still wearing my ring. And I was so instantly judgmental. How could you, you know, some were wearing it around their neck as a necklace, you know, some had turned it into another piece of jewelry. Some were tucked away for their kids. And I was just looked around and I'm like, how could you guys not love your husband anymore? And it's so not that it's a part of the healing process. And what I would say would be that you have to make the best decision for you and you only, because if you're like me, you will worry about what others think the whole entire time. If anyone knew that I was even talking to another man or anything pursuing dating again, they must think that I am so over Mike and I didn't love him or, or I'm, I'm totally healed and I'm fine. That's not the case at all. And it's like when you have, when you have your firstborn and then you have another child, how could you love that child as much as you love your first? You don't. And then when that child comes, you're like, oh my gosh, I can love them both equally. Right. It's the same thing for me when I started dating David and then eventually married him. I can love both men. And the such awesome part is that I call David, my husband on earth. He lets me love another man. And it takes a special guy to do that. And I will openly say, and he will openly say that, you know, she still loves Mike. She is still married. Mike and I did not get a divorce. We are still married. Right. But I can equally, like having that second baby, I can equally open my heart to find love again and happiness again. And it's okay. So do, if anyone was in my situation, I would say, do not worry about the other people. And that is so hard to do. You do what is best for you and what you feel God is leading you to do. If Christ is first in every decision you're making and you're prayerfully considering and thinking, starting a relationship or getting married, then, then go for it, you know, explore that happiness because Christ is first. So what are you going to lose? Right. God's in control. Amen. So in your book, you talked about how you and David went to therapy to figure out how to blend your two families. So what can you offer to anyone struggling with blending families and is there a right way and a wrong way to go about it? What, what worked for you and David? I don't think there's a right way or a wrong way. I think that each family is very, very different in their situations. For us, we were really treading lightly on my boys. My boys were so, they were still so hurt in their each individual ways. So we had to tread lightly on bringing David into the relationship. So based on the advice from my therapist, what we did is I stopped hiding when I was talking to him on the phone or texting. I mean, I would seriously put them to bed and go sit on the floor in my walk-in closet to talk to them or talk to him. I'm sorry, because I didn't want the boys to say, who is mom talking to on the phone after we go to bed? I tried to hide everything from them. And I was, you know, it was brought to light that that's not healthy. So what I started doing was talking to David in front of the boys. And then when they said, who am I talking to? Oh, it's just 
a friend that I met. His name's David. And then eventually start mentioning him more and more. And then the first time he came around, it was a big group setting. And it kept continue to be a group setting until they started to get more comfortable with him. Once they started to get more comfortable with him, they naturally noticed the connection, but they were already his friend. And the same went for his children. You know, he did the same thing on his end. And then when we brought the children together, it was a play date. Our kids were young at the time and they were used to doing play dates with other children. So it was like, hey, you want to go do a play date at the park with so-and-so? Sure, yeah. You want to go, you know, meet at the yogurt shop? So they just associated it with just like any other new family we would meet and hang out with. So that comfortableness and that safety and everything was just started from the very beginning before it was just like, hey, this is my new boyfriend, you know? So I would say that that advice that we got to gradually and slowly introduce each other for us, that worked really well. That's, and that was real wisdom that you were given. Yes. And I'm so thankful for that. Because Mm -hmm. if you're hiding it, then that teaches them, you know, that's the wrong message that exactly. Yeah. You're kind of living a double life or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Good stuff. Okay. So we're going to wrap this up with this question. How do you balance being the widow of fallen officer, Michael J. Catherman and the wife of David Redgrave? What challenges are there in serving in both roles? Well, it's a lot. And it's still, it's still a lot for me emotionally. You know, I still have to really put my emotions in check a lot and and still let myself grieve and still let myself have those bad days, still let myself miss Mike, all while I'm loving David. And I mean, here, here's a great example. David and I got married and we couldn't go on our honeymoon for a week later because I had to immediately come back from our wedding and have my, my roles as the fallen officer's wife at police week ceremonies. You know, I have to balance them all the time. And like I mentioned before, the only way I can do that is because God has blessed me with a man that understands it and lets it happen. And so it's just a matter of being okay and open with your feelings and letting yourself love both of them openly and being honest with your husband or or wife on earth. I have to always be honest with David of how I'm feeling because if I'm keeping those emotions from him, that's not good. And so as hard as it might be for him, and I don't know how he does it, he is just one amazing man to let me still love another man openly. But I have to express to him, hey, I'm having a hard day. I just miss him today. You know, I just need to go off by myself. And He's the first to suggest that or say, are you okay today? Or, you know, and so it's just, I, I, I'm just so incredibly blessed to have that husband on earth that, that is okay with me going back and forth from each role because it's hard. You know, I'm going to have me and David's wedding anniversary, let's say like next week. And then a couple of weeks later, it's me and Mike's anniversary and I'm going to celebrate me and Mike's anniversary. You know, 
I'm not going to stop any of that. And so it's just being able to openly just embrace both, I guess I could say. And that's a very emotionally mature person to be Mm -hmm. able to love you and not be threatened by your husband in heaven. Yeah, that's good. You got a good one. I do. Yes. (laughs) I I have heard some horrible stories of people marrying people that just, you know, were offended whenever they talked about their late spouse or, you know, really took it as. And that would, that would hurt. That would hurt. And that would not be good for my children either. Yeah. The example that my children get to see that we still celebrate these days. And there's pictures of them and dad all over the house, Mm -hmm. you know that's so healthy for them. And that is what I think has helped their healing process so much is to openly see me still love their dad. I love that. That's so, so good. Mm -hmm. So before we finish up for today, this is such a huge Romans 828 story, how God Mm -hmm. really did work good out of something that seemed so bad and such a loss. And God is just worked so much together for good. Can you give our listeners just a tip or a tool that helped you remember, even when it was hard, that God was working behind the scenes and he Mm -hmm. is going to make good come from this? Can't quite figure out how, but you know, what helped you hang on to that? What helped me is to remember that God always has a perfect plan. And as much as I hated that plan that he had. I hated the fact that he already knew that Mike was going to die. When, when Mike and I got married on, you know, in 2004, he knew on that day that this many years later, Mike was going to leave me. And that angered me. But when you step back and you know that God's plan is always perfect, but we're never going to understand it. As much as I've healed through my process, I'm still never going to understand the why. Why did God take him from me? And once I really was able to embrace that exact, you know, Jeremiah 29, 11, that God has a plan and a perfect purpose for my life. That is when I was like, okay, God, sometime I'm going to see this unfold. It might not be in my lifetime. It might be when I get to heaven and I ask you all the questions that I have, but I am going to see this unfold and I'm going to trust you through this whole entire process as hard as it is. So I would just say that even when you are at your absolute worst and it's hard to think, you know what? God has a plan and I don't know what it is. He has a purpose. Just try to keep that somewhere in your heart and in your mind, as hard as it is in the beginning. Absolutely. And when it's, when it's a loss or a, a, you know, a real trauma like this, Mm -hmm. the one thing that I see over and over is how God will take that experience of suffering and enable you to minister hope to someone who's coming along behind you Mm -hmm. and is really hurting. Yeah. So that is just, and and your book's going to do that for a lot of people. I'm excited about that. Oh, that's what I pray. Amen. So thank you so much for being with us today, April. It was absolutely delightful to have you. Thank you you for having me. Thank you. Amen. Mm -hmm. 
All right, we are back for the second segment of today's All Things Podcast. Let me introduce you to our next guest. Dr. Larry Selig, a Presbyterian pastor, and his wife, Ida, live in Winter Springs, Florida. A graduate of Dartmouth College and Princeton Theological Seminary, he received his Doctor of Ministry degree from Luther Theological Seminary, St. Paul, Minnesota. His doctoral thesis on training and equipping lay people in ministry is now published as Discovering Your Spiritual DNA and being used in churches throughout the United States and Canada. After serving churches in Connecticut, New York, Minnesota, and Pennsylvania, Larry took early retirement in 1998 to recycle into ministry throughout the United States and beyond with Ida, an elementary teacher. They have mentored pastors, doctors, seminary students, youth, and adult leaders in Brazil, where Ida happens to speak fluent Portuguese, England, Albania, Canada, Guatemala, Costa Rica, Chile, Bermuda, Cuba, and Israel. Since 1976, Larry has taken numerous groups to Israel, Jordan, Egypt, Turkey, and Greece to study the ministries of Jesus and the Apostle Paul. His recently published book, Five Prayers God Loves to Answer, is based on the Lord's Prayer. It includes discussion questions and exercises on prayer as conversation with God, how to listen to Him, and the many ways God may choose to share His desires with us. Also, how to discern if it is God speaking and not someone else. A pastor has written, Our small group recently discussed Dr. Larry Selig's book together. We were blessed out of our socks and will not read or hear the Lord's Prayer the same way again. All right, let's go ahead and roll that conversation. Well, Larry, I have been looking forward to having this conversation with you on the All Things Podcast. So welcome to the show today. Well, thank you, Athena. And it's so good to be with you, the East Coast and West Coast coming together. I know it. I love technology. It can, <laughs> you know, a technology can be the most frustrating and at the same time, the most glorious way to share what God's, his goodness and his, just his faithfulness in working all things together for good in our lives. So I'm so excited to introduce you to our listening audience and let them get a glimpse of how God has worked so many Romans 828 moments in your life. Mm. So we're going to jump in at the beginning to your call to become a pastor. And it apparently was not your first career path. At <laughs> least it wasn't what you had in mind. So tell us, tell us about that. Well, my dad was a mechanical engineer. The whole family were engineers far back as I know, and then he is a genealogist, so he went back about 800 years. We've never had a pastor in our family. Church people, but no pastors. And so when I graduated from high school, I won all the science and, and mathematical prizes and so forth. So immediately I got a job at a chemical corporation in Delaware with the idea I would work there all the way through college and graduate school, and I'd have a research chemistry job waiting for me when I finished. And I thought, that's pretty neat back then. 
And uh, so I plunged in, and then I, I left for my freshman year of college. And as I look back now, I loved working in a lab and doing research. Uh, but the thing that I missed is I'm an extrovert. And I did one test 5,000 times, working on water softeners for the woolen mills in New England and so forth. And I thought, you know, I sort of miss contact with people. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea what that meant. But it was not until the end of my freshman year in college, I was confronted to a Bible study for the first time I studied the Bible, met some wonderful Christians from the West Coast, and I committed my life to Christ as my Savior. And uh, about a year later, I went away to a Christian conference up in Canada. And have you ever been to a, a meeting and you say, did somebody tell the speaker about me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> And every speaker was zero in, in on, yeah, he's your savior, but he's not your Lord. Yeah. You need to turn your life over. And I thought, well, wait a minute. That means my career means who I'm going to marry. It means a whole lot of big things. I'm not sure I'm ready to trust God with those things. Right. Because, of course, the devil was, was giving me all these horrendous ideas of what God's choices might be. But it got so bad that we were there for a month in an island in the middle of a large lake. I either had to swim or borrow a boat to get out of there. I went off to the woods and said, Lord, I got to settle this once and for all. And I took my Bible and said, you have to prove to me that your will is better than what I have planned. Ooh. And to make a long story short, I, I, I don't recommend this. I took the Bible and I just flipped through the Bible and go boom. And I was running into things like uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And I was running with other passages like, the will of God, the good, acceptable, perfect will of God, and all that. Finally, I said, okay, I get it. <laughs> okay, God. Yeah. So I turned my life over, but I hope I can be a Christian chemist. Because I try to honor you in the chemical research lab. And the Lord just seemed to laugh and said, well, I had some other ideas. I said, what's that? I want you to be a pastor. Mm. And I, I, I was shocked because... I could not speak before people. Wow. Athena, I could stand. I, they would ask me during youth Sunday to read the Bible. And I could not even read because I was so nervous. My, my eyes could not follow the words on the page. Wow. And my senior year, I was first chair, first trumpet in the high school band, one of the leaders of the band. And I was to play a soloist at the graduation with the choir. And when it was time to stand up, I said to the band director, I can't do it. And he was embarrassed. He was actually he was angry. They went on ahead without me, but that's that's who I was. So I said to the Lord, look, if you want me to be a pastor, either you or I will be very embarrassed <laughs> when I stand up there and go blah 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 blah. Right. And, wow. and he said to me, This is ideas coming into my head. He said, Larry, I didn't ask for your ability. I ask for your availability. Ooh, that's and if you are going to be open your life to be able, I will give you the ability to do it. Mm. And so with that, I, I went home that summer and announced to my parents that I was leaving, you know, and it's this wonderful Ivy League school. I was leaving my chemistry major and I was switching to history because I figured that's my core subject, but it's church history. Right. And they were very upset. 
I can imagine. We'll pay for your college education, but then you're on your own. Wow. So I went off to seminary with $500 in my pocket. I didn't know how I was going to get through graduate school and so forth. But I tell you what, by the time I graduated from Princeton four years later, my parents were some of my biggest cheerleaders. Mm, I love that. And they were both active in the church. They were both elders in the church. And they saw that it was the right choice because my life was changed. Mm. And they saw the fruit of, of what Jesus was doing. Amen. So that was, uh, you know, that just being able, he had to pull it off. And I didn't know how he was going to do it. Right. But he did. <laughs> he did. I love that. All right. So, Larry, what inspired you to write your most recent book with Redemption Press, Five Prayers God Loves to Answer? Well, it's very interesting, Athena. In my very first church that I was the solo pastor in up in the upper New York State, you know, Lake Placid, where the Winter Olympics, I had the church right next door in the next city. And I decided one summer I was going to give the people a list of 10 or 15 questions that people often ask. And I was going to print it in the bulletin and ask people to give me their top three choices in order. Number one, two, and three. And I collected those and I I decided I would take the top 10 and that would be our summer sermon. And the, the number one for the first week was, why doesn't God answer my prayers? That was the most frequent question that people had in mind. Mm. And so I began to preach on, uh, you know, what, some of the reasons why God doesn't answer our prayers. But then the more and more I reflected on it, I thought, well, he does answer our prayers, not always <laughs> the way we want. Yeah, and then, like that was a no, right? <laughs> we don't yeah. want to hear no. Yeah, no is one. One is slow down. You're not ready yet. Yep. One is the situation isn't available yet. You just be patient. And when the door opens, I'll let you know. And then the last one is go for it. Okay. But but still, that didn't answer what I was, what was happening in my life because I was learning to hear God speak and began to realize, you know, uh, when I one day I read this passage, which, which we know very well in John 15, 7, where Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you can ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. And I thought, now, come on, (laughs) that's too good to be true. You know, you got to be serious. And then the Lord said, look at the ifs. If you abide in me, that meant intimacy. How do you get intimacy? By listening, by spending time with. And if you hear what I said, and read the Bible, and listen to my words, then you're going to be praying my will, and my agenda, and not yours. Yep. And so I began to develop over the years, uh, a number of things that God has done in speaking to me, and how it made a big difference. Mm. And uh, so I had all these chapters, and uh, many of them were, were sermons in themselves. And I put them all in the box, I said, someday I want to put these all together. But I couldn't sit down long enough, as you know, writing a book. <laughs> yep. I don't have to tell you. Yeah. yeah. And uh, COVID-19, before COVID-19, Ida had three hip surgeries. And that sheltered us in place from October through February when she finally recovered her last surgery. <laughs> Just in oh, time for COVID. COVID. Yes. 
she said, just in time I can go someplace and there's no place to go. So that's that's when I wrote the book. Wow. And try to put it all together. So now talk about Romans 8.28, what has been so hard and so disastrous for so many people across the country. Here God used that thing that would be so hard for so many to allow you to have the time to put that together to encourage people. Because, you know, when people hear from God and learn how to hear from God and learn how the kinds of prayers that he likes to answer, they don't get all freaked out at what's going on out there. They're able to have that peace. So Mm -hmm. I love how he worked that together for good in your life. Exactly. Wow. I you know the, the word for crisis, which of course we're in, we're still in a crisis mode. The word in Chinese for crisis is two characters. One is danger, watch out, and the second is opportunity. They put those two together to put the word crisis. And so, what this book is getting at is, yeah, there are some problems that we're facing. The problems are not the problem. The problem is how we respond to them. Exactly. Do they respond in our human resources or do we respond by saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? What can you can you speak to me? Can can I hear from you? And so as I began to write this book and had a number of people helping me edit it by just getting the reaction, they said, you know, Larry, this is going to be helpful to a lot of people right now. There's a lot of people really need to hear from God, but they don't know how to. Right. Wow. I love that. So what kinds of responses are you getting to the book thus far? Stories from churches and individuals all over all over the world. Tell me about well, that. Well, it's only been, you know, since October. So November and December, uh, January and February. I have a church right now, my former church. I haven't been there for 22 years. They started last Sunday. The sermon series for the next nine weeks, except for Easter Sunday, is going to be going through the book and preaching about prayer. And they have 15 small groups that are going to be studying it in between each Sunday. And so this is an opportunity. I'm really interested because, you know, you can change one person's life, but is it possible to change a whole church culture by having a lot of people learning to listen at the same time? And having all three pastors buying into it, that's a miracle. That is, oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> that is a total miracle. Like, yeah, yeah. And I have three other Presbyterian churches where the, the pastors are doing small groups and wanting to do a sermon series on this, and it's just starting because the book is it's still just coming off, you know, the press. Yeah, and I I have a young man who is working with with young men around the world in Haiti, in the stands, uh, other nations I can't tell you about. And he's discipling young men, and he's going to each one of them, taking this book and teaching them, because they, they all the young people all know English around the world because of the internet, teaching them about how to listen to God. Mm. And these are young leaders in all these countries. So I thought, wow. Yeah. Wow. So I noticed in the book, you give credit to your wife, Ida, for being a mentor and encourager in ministry. So right. how, how did you meet? And tell us about the Romans 8.28 story. 
Well, you know, one of the, the crises about letting Jesus be your Lord, as I mentioned, is, you know, who's he going to choose for you to marry? And the Lord would, you know, assure me his, his will was good, but the devil was saying, yeah, she probably has a long dress and she wears her hair in a bun and, and she's one of these, uh, you know, you know, straight laced, you know, you know, all these horrible thoughts. And I thought when I was a sophomore, no, when I was a senior, I thought I had met a young lady in college that I wanted to marry. So I went off to seminary out in California and came back and spent some time with her that uh, over Christmas. And, and I really enjoyed it. I said, Lord, that's who I want, want to marry. And when I got back to Fuller Seminary, the Lord said, no. Well, actually, the Lord didn't say no. But I got a letter that said, dear John, it's been so good to know you. <laughs> well, yes, he did say no, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I was absolutely depressed yeah. and discouraged. Because, you know, when you're in seminary, you would know this because of your husband. Most seminary students, when they graduate, the churches want a couple. They, they don't want a single guy. Okay? Right. And that's a lot of pressure when you're in seminary about who are you going to marry? And so I was really down on the dumps. And the other lady that you met that I honored, Mrs. Pearl Good, Billy Graham's prayer mother. Uh She met me my first probably month at seminary and she got acquainted. And she said, Larry, if, if you would like, I will pray for you during your seminary. And when you become a pastor, I thought, Billy Graham's prayer mother wants to pray for me. Wow. Oh, well, I, I didn't turn that one down. So what happens three days after I got Dear John's letter, or her letter, <laughs> Pearl Good comes walking down the street in front of the seminary building looking for me. And she said, Larry, what's going on? The Lord told me that you're really depressed and discouraged. And when she told me that, I said, the Lord knows my situation. Yes, he does. You know, and he sent Pearl Good to encourage me and to pray with me. And, and she said, basically, Larry, the Lord shut a door because he has a much better door in the future. And you'll just have to trust him. I transferred to Princeton to finish up because I had to get my Roman citizenship, as it were. I had to get an East Coast Seminary degree if I was going to minister in New England because they're very particular. Mm-hmm. They don't like California pastors, you see, <laughs> right. especially from Fuller Seminary at that right, time. Right, right. So I was about ready to graduate from Princeton. And I tell you, Athena, I still was not equipped to be a pastor. I still couldn't speak before people. And I, but I got a call to a church where I would be the associate, which is okay. I could be a single guy and be associate. And just before I graduated, a friend of mine at Armored the student body, invited me to go to a conference to lead a workshop. It was a Faith at Work conference, Bruce Larson. I don't know if you know uh, any of the people back there and in that early days of renewal. It was a late renewal conference, and I was speaking. And Joe and I met three young school teachers at the door of the church going to the team meeting. And these three high school, secular high school teachers no, not, they were elementary school teachers, were teaching a workshop, the healing ministry of Jesus in the classroom. Wow. And I listened to some of their stories between their sessions. I wanted to leave my workshop and go to theirs. They knew something that I didn't know. 
about the person of the Holy Spirit. So, and so one of the three, I said, Joe, I, I want to get to know this one by, by the name of Ida. I want to invite her down to Princeton. I did the next few weekends to pick her brain about what she knew that Ray weren't telling us about in seminary. And she began to teach me, uh, she was an Episcopalian, about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how he could empower me to do what Jesus is calling me to do. And uh, in a blizzard, the following Christmas Eve, I drove down from Connecticut to New Jersey, where she lived. And in a 10-inch snowstorm, I proposed to her and gave her the ring. And uh, the following July, we were married. Wow. 59 years. Wow. And and to think a Dear John letter turns into yeah. such a significant, I mean, not just, I mean, you married her, you fell in love with her, married her, but just what she brought to the table and that experience and that mm -hmm. wow she complimented all of my weaknesses yeah and, wow. and i i did the same for her and together we we've, we've been married and have two children and would you believe eight grandchildren and they're all following the lord and a, a lot of the credit goes to her because she was an elementary teacher and a wonderful mother and grandmother and it, it's just been she as i say she prayed me into power, and she loved me into wholeness. Mm, I love that. Prayed you into power and loved you into wholeness. That's, mm -hmm. that, that would preach. Uh, and yeah. I bet you preached on that. <laughs> okay. You got Let it, me, babe. <laughs> let's wrap this up with this last question. What have you found helpful in assisting others in their Romans 828 situation? Well, one of the things that I use all the time, I started doing this years ago, maybe you read about in the book, these stop, think cards in one of the chapters. And one of the problems that people are going through is we don't think the way the Lord wants us to think. We let fear, we let anxiety, we let, we let all those emotions control our thinking. And so what I do to say to people, that's very difficult to control. So I give them, uh, after I talk with them and we pray and have counseling, I say, now, uh, here's, here's a one about trusting the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. I had a guy who was building a highway in upper New York State. He was in charge of the project. He had three months to finish the project because when it started snowing, he was done. He said, Larry, I'm really anxious because... We're, we're already a month behind mm -hmm. and I don't know what to do. So I gave him, I gave him this card and I said, now, Bob, what I want you to do whenever your anxiety happens, say to yourself, if there's nobody around out, out now, stop that. And then turn it over and do what it says. Trust in him. Yeah. Don't try to figure it out in all your ways. And he will guide your path. Yeah. And I sent him off. And two weeks later, he came back. He said, Larry, he said, it's working. I said, what? I said, this car. First time I had to pull out 15 times the first day. Second day, I had it down to 10. By the end of the week, I had it memorized. And every time anxiety comes, I say, stop it. Mm -hmm. And I think what the Lord wants me to think. And I commit it to him. He came back another two months. He said, Larry, we're finished. Three weeks ahead of schedule. Wow. <laughs> I love that. 
they said, because when I'm anxious, I can't think straight. I can't do what I need to do. And so I listened to the Lord and said, Lord, what do I do now? And I I found that that, uh, rational Christian thinking is one of the things that's so hard because the devil's favorite words are, be afraid, be anxious. Yeah. And Jesus' favorite words are, be at peace. I am with you. Yep. I will guide you. Yeah. Learning to think like a Christian is one of the hardest things. But uh, this, this has been a practical help. I use this with nurses in Brazil. <laughs> One nurse came up and said in Portuguese, Des, uh, Daisies, 10 times, I use it first day. And she pulls it out of the uniform. See, it's it's already worn. <laughs> I love it. It works. <laughs> I love it. And you know what? We do we do have to just tell ourselves, stop it. Stop. Right. No, I refuse that thought. Stop yeah. is one of the most powerful words I use in spiritual warfare. Yep. Yep. And I tell it. I tell him in his face. <laughs> yep. Well, and you know what? We're supposed to do that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I quote. The words of scripture, not my own. <laughs> exactly. Because, you know, Satan quotes scripture all the time. He just does it out of context and with a sarcasm and a sneer and hopes will buy into what he's saying when That's we right. should be saying, stop it. I'm not listening to that. I trust God. This is what God's word said. Yeah. Yeah. I love so. that. But it's been quite a ride. That's why I don't want to retire because, first of all, retirement's not in the scripture. Yes. But secondly, exactly. I'm having such a blast, you know, doing ministry now. I don't have to run an institution anymore. I don't have to worry about the budget. I don't have to work on job description. I can just be open to the opportunity to say, Lord, I'm reporting to duty today. <laughs> How do you want to use me to make this yep. world a better place? Uh, it's been okay. fun. Well, I'm excited to see all of the lives that are going to change from five prayers. God loves to answer because it is, it's that kind of book. That's, you know, learning to hear from God is so incredibly important. So I love that you've done it in a way that's not intimidating. It's very, you're very approachable and you know, you give real practical spiritual advice. So Thank you so much for spending this time with us today. It's been a delight to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much, Athena. And I'm looking forward to further contact and uh, I'll let you know how things develop as they they continue around the world. It, it's the Lord's book. So I just gave it to him. I said, you can do anything you want with it. <laughs> Amen. Well, thanks for joining us today for the All Things Podcast brought to you by Redemption Press and the Romans 828 Bookstore. So, hey, I'd like to ask you a favor. If you would, consider sharing this episode with your friends on social media. And if you haven't yet left a review of the podcast on Apple, I would love it if you would take a minute to do that as it would help other people find the show and also let them know that it's a show worth listening to. So thanks so much for joining us today and I will see you next week. Bye for now.